Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Bitches on Comics. I am your host, Sarah Century. There is another host that you need to be aware of. Oh my. Hello, and that's me, Essie Fleenor. So pleased to be here with my favorite host, Sarah Century. Oh, am I my favorite host? No, it's definitely Sarah Century. And I am just plain delighted that we have two guests here with us today. And I have the honor of introducing someone you all may remember from episode 91, A Stealth Multiverse, the incredible R.B. Lemberg. Hi, R.B., how are you doing? Hi, so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me, having me back, I should say. We're so pleased that you've returned to us. So we we couldn't have done too wrong by you because you're back for more. Oh, thank you. (laughs) And so our next guest is Ada Hoffman, uh, who is my friend. And I think I lose track of how long we've known each other, Ada. I do not remember how long we've known each other, but it's at least since LiveJournal. Yeah, it's I think it's at least a decade. What do you think? It's been a long time. Oh, goodness. When was a decade ago was 2011? I might have known you in 2011. I'm not sure. <laughs> I think so, because that's when Stone Telling was maybe in the second year. All right. Yes. I published you in that. Oh, gosh. I remember Stone Telling. Wow. That was yeah, such that a good was... magazine. Ancient days. What? <laughs> <laughs> Did we talk about this last time? I'm like, I don't think I even heard of that. So it we was can on a talk zine? about stone telling later. Oh yeah, oh, we can yeah. we can talk about stone telling. Uh, we can talk about stone telling, but it's over and it's been over for six years. So <laughs> I I think we really are reaching ancient days territory. So Ada is a wonderful, wonderful fiction and poetry writer who's also my friend, and Ada Hoffman uh, is an author of two great books that I hope to ask some questions about because I think everybody should know about those books. And they're The Outside and The Fallen. Arby, that was a great intro. I feel like maybe you should take over the podcast and start doing introductions. Like, If somebody's going to edit, I don't know, if somebody <laughs> wants to do everything and I will just sit and talk it myself. Oh, no, 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 that's a terrible <laughs> idea. No, we will not do that. <laughs> you know what? We'll make ourselves available anytime you want to come on the pod and talk to yourself. <laughs> We're here for you. <laughs> Thank you. I think you are Ada. doing a wonderful job. So it's, oh I'm, God, I'm happy to be a guest. So how about that? You're bringing tears to my eyes. You're too good. Ada, thank you for joining us. We are just so pumped that you are here. Well, thank you. Uh, I think, I think Arby said everything, mostly everything I was going to say to introduce myself, but 
My name's Ada. I am the author of the space opera Cosmic Horror, books The Outside and The Fallen, as well as quite a few poems and short stories. And I write a great deal about autism. Yeah, you know, I was first exposed to your work. Someone on Twitter was like, hey, I just read this book and I would describe it as a queer, autistic, space opera horror and I was like say fewer words I'm in like I don't know what else you want from me like this is was this book written for me I'm not gonna lie sometimes I do feel like the book was written for me I'm like "Mm, pretty sure this is this is the book I've been begging for it is just so delightful so I'm I you know when RB was like hey we want to talk about neurodiversity queer and trans identities and speculative fiction is there a podcast that wants to host us I was like Sarah 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 can I do this Sarah can I do this Sarah was like yes of course that sounds like exactly our thing (laughs) so I was like me pick me well I am so pleased to hear that Um, But yes, a queer autistic space opera horror is exactly how I would describe The Outside. Oh, it's just such a delightful book. And we're obviously going to get really into both The Outside and The Fallen. But I'm curious for you, Ada, like, how did you get into speculative fiction? And and do you, you know, do you read comics? Is it mostly through fantasy? Is it horror? I'm just really curious. I'd love to hear more about how, how baby Ada started out. So I've been reading science fiction and fantasy books really since I was a small child um, because those were the books my parents liked. So of course they would, they would read them to me. They would read me things like, you know, Narnia and that, you know, and we watched things like Star Wars and that was just how I grew up. And it was, it's almost my, it's almost my comfort zone in a way. And because I grew up with it, it's almost, you know, I hear stories of people who, you know, got into science fiction somewhat later in life. And it was this like forbidden weird thing for them. It was never like that for me. For me, it was almost the opposite. When I read people who, who don't like speculative fiction, it's almost, I have to, I have to take a second. I have to be like, why would you limit yourself that way? Why would you limit yourself to one reality? <laughs> <laughs> That's like when someone's like, I don't want anything with vampires and robots to me. I'm like, then I don't want you in my life. Get out. <laughs> All I want is vampires and robots fighting. <laughs> RB, that sounds like very different than your experience, right? Because it took a while for you to get into the science fiction and fantasy, or am I wrong about that? No, I actually also was an early reader of science mm. fiction specifically, and also mythic stuff, folkloric stuff. Mm. And my father, actually both my parents, but my father especially has been a science fiction fan. And I talk a little bit in my interview that I just gave to Locus about how I stole a book from their, from their <laughs> coffee table, and it was it's a, a beetle in an anthill by by the brothers Strugatsky, which is this really, really dark, horrorish science fiction novel that was not appropriate for an eight-year-old. <laughs> um, it includes scenes where children are lured into these like brightly lit um, candy shops, which are created by an alien intelligence, and then the candy shop disappears and the children with it. And so this has had an impact on me, okay? <laughs> I have it and ever since then, I, yeah, yeah, I was very into sci-fi. Yeah, I realized I was actually thinking of when you read Ursula Le Guin when I was when I was thinking about the timeline. So yes, absolutely. Also, do you go into candy shops still? Or are you like, you know what? <laughs> no, I don't eat candy. Like, no, absolutely not. No. It's like, mm-mm, I don't trust those aliens. I'm not going to get in their candy shop spaceship and disappear. Absolutely I love that story. <laughs> I love that so much. Yeah, no, that's amazing. 
Yeah, kind of what you're describing is this sort of pull-push relationship with sci-fi in a way, right? Like, I remember being a big horror fan whenever I was a kid, and I would read stuff where I was just like, this is the worst thing I've ever read. Like, this is so upsetting. But then it was like, turn the page and turn the page again. And like, you just keep reading. And I, I think that there is like a morality to like most speculative fiction where there's always a message to it in some way. But also it's kind of a rocky road to get there a lot of the time. So do you feel like that was true for you? The way that it kind of like draws you in with kind of like these horrible things, but also a sort of underlying morality to it. You know, uh, I think that the Brothers Strugatsky, the work of Brothers Strugatsky is, is very ethically complicated. It's very philosophical. It's actually really, really kind of Russian Soviet intelligentsia literature with layers and layers of meaning. So I don't know if I got like, here's the morality that you get out of it, but I definitely got out of it that I wanted. I wanted to read things that have layers of meaning and I wanted to read things that I got to reread. And of course, then... And the same is true for Ursula K. Le Guin. But I actually don't think that the line separating spec from literary is that distinct. So so perhaps I'm not the right person to ask this question. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, hmm, could you perhaps be a big fan of Ursula Le Guin? <laughs> um, perhaps, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> perhaps so. I actually think that's one of the things I really value about her work and and both of yours in different ways is the way that, yeah, it's undeniably speculative in these cases, but it's also like real. It's also, it's about people's feelings. Oh, this was something that really stood out to me actually in both of your works. And I'm, I'm thinking here particularly for RB of The Four Profound Weaves and for you, Ada, I'm thinking of The Fallen because I've read that most recently. And where I see some science fiction and fantasy relying super heavily on big fight scenes, not that you all don't have fight moments or fight scenes. What we see so often is that we turn toward the emotional, we turn toward the the human connection, we turn toward the internal, the introspective. And those are as much treated as fertile grounds for exploration as, as the cool robotic angel, cyborg, alien, god things, or the cool bird who like, can help you change your gender. They're treated with as much depth and respect in in both cases. Do you think that has to do with how you view that line in your case, RB, of like, well, it seems like a really blurry line between speculative fiction and non-speculative fiction? And like, why does the emotional, why does the interpersonal matter so much in speculative writing? And that's a question for Ada as well. Well, for me, I will tell you a secret, which is that I actually have trouble writing fight scenes. There are something, you know, big battle scenes. There are a couple in the books, but they're things I had to like go back and revise several times before they felt good because that doesn't come naturally to me thinking about, oh, which spaceship is where and what are they, what are they doing to try to win the fight? And how does that progress? Like that's something I struggle with a bit more and I'm not as even though, even though it produces, you know, cool visuals and whatnot, it's not something I naturally have an affinity for the way I see many speculative fans having an affinity for it. If I'm watching a movie and there's a fight scene and it goes on too long, I'll just be like, I've completely lost track of what's happening. This is fine. There's a battle. Swoosh, swoosh. I'm kind of bored now. Um, <laughs> but on the other hand, if I'm writing feelings, because I am an introspective person, I will just naturally write like seven paragraphs about how the character is feeling. And then some readers bounce off of that. They're like, that was too much introspection. And I'm like, sorry. <laughs> 
Um, but it's almost automatic for me in that way. <laughs> so I th- thank you, Ada. This was uh, this this is really cool. Also, actually, from a neurodiverse perspective, because I often feel that many action scenes, for example, in films, are very very fast. They're very fast, and uh, because I'm a trauma survivor, and I kind of had this, you know, very long trajectory that involved a few immigrations and places of high conflict, I wanted to create a world that would not place so much emphasis on war. It's not that there's no war in Birdverse, but it's not something that I want to write in terms of writing fight scenes. I'm very interested in the aftermath and in the fallouts. Um, and it's something that Ada is also doing. So in the fall, and I think we see kind of, I don't want to spoiler the book too much because again, I think everybody should read it, but we kind of see the, the emotional aftermath of the big events for characters. And often we just don't get that in fiction. And I think that for me, and again, I don't want to overgeneralize, but for me, every big event in which there's a lot of action, right? There's a lot of fighting, there's all relocations. You need to decompress from that. You need to process that. And sometimes it takes a very long time. And uh, we don't see that as often. I think that as maybe neurodiverse people, we need that space. And trauma processing in communities is a thing that happens in real life. And I wanted to explore what that would be like in fictional settings, if that makes sense. So that for me is much more interesting, much more important for me as a writer and also as a reader than action scenes. But sometimes I write them and they can be fun, but not all the time. And there are plenty of people who do very good job writing, you know, fighting scenes, action scenes of all kinds. And so it's just kind of a difference of authorial approach, I guess. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I mean, The Fallen, as you might be able to tell from its title, quite a lot of that book is about characters trying to recover from what's happened to them in book one, because I am not easy on my characters. They had a lot of trauma happening to them in the first book. And in the second book, unfortunately, trauma is continuing to happen, but they've retreated a little bit. They've banded together and they're trying to figure out a different way to deal with all this. That's kind of my incredibly generic way of saying it without spoilers. <laughs> and that does, of course, build to another conflict that happens externally. But it's very much about people uh, recovering from trauma and experiencing mental illness and experiencing the aftermath of a disaster and trying to figure out how to help each other. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That is that's a great description of the fallen. I'm curious too, you know, RB, I think you talked about how part of that style of storytelling is related to neurodiversity. And I'm curious too, if it's also related to queer and transness, because to me, the the queer and trans stories I love the most, and or maybe the better way to put this is the speculative stories I love the most, which happen to almost always be queer and trans speculative stories, are those that don't eschew the interior in favor of of big battle scenes. And I, you know, there are plenty of people who balance that. I think of Nine Fox Gambit by Yoon Ha Lee, which is just such a, a beautiful, beautiful book with tons of big fight scenes, but it also has that interiority. Because I don't think it has to be either or, and I don't hear either of you saying that. But I, I'm curious, is there something queer and trans to that? Is there a, a need for queer and trans creators telling queer and trans speculative stories to mine the internal, the interior, the introspective? And maybe if you don't want to talk for the whole genre, which I can respect, I guess, is there something in that for you? 
Well, I'm not sure whether there's something queer and trans about it inherently, but one thing I do want to point out is that Yoon Ha Lee, who you just mentioned, is not only queer and trans, but is also neurodiverse on himself. Exactly. But as for queer and trans, I'm not sure about the causality, but if there was a connection, I think it would come from the fact that in order to embrace your identity as someone who is queer or trans, you need to do some introspecting. You need to think about what you're feeling and why, and why it's not the same as what the people around you seem to be feeling. I mean, there are plenty of introspective straight people, but it's a type of introspecting that a lot of straight people don't have to do in the same way. So maybe that might, maybe some of it might come from there, but I'm not sure. So thank you, Ada, for that. Um, bouncing off that, I think, and let me, let me think about it for a moment because I feel it's a very important and very, very central question, but it, it's, it's nuanced. And so I want, I want to kind of take a stab at it without overgeneralizing because I really don't want to do that. There are recent studies that are just beginning to gain traction, but they are out there that show a connection between autism spectrum folks and um, gender diversity. So in other words, people on the spectrum are more likely, significantly more likely to be trans than non-neurodiverse people. And of course, neurodiversity is a large umbrella, but let's, let's think about it maybe as something that's intersecting and is specifically speaking to an experience of being queer and trans and neurodiverse at the same time, plus whatever other, um, you know, access of identity that come into it. Like for me, it's being an immigrant and having physical disabilities. For other people, it might be the experience of being a person of color or additional identity access. So it's kind of compounding. A lot of times introspection is there because you need to consider being, um, you know, being minoritized or not experiencing the world in the same way as people around you who do not seem to have trouble might, you know, might experience the world. And so you start asking yourself, well, what's going on? And so you kind of generate a lot of introspection about where you fit in the world. Do you fit in the world? What is it going to take to fit in the world? And so when, when you start telling stories, it is spills over to stories. And a lot of us, uh, I think Ada uh, and Bogi and some other friends of ours have been, we've been early on talking about the kind of rejections we used to get, where we would get, you know, editors remark on the slowness or the too much internality. Um, one of my stories, Bird vs. Stories, Geometries of Belonging, that is probably, it was published five or even six years ago, five years ago at least. And it still is read and people discuss it that has um, has more than one neurodiverse um, character. And the first editor who read it sent me a very sympathetic rejection and said, well, it's just nothing happens. The character just thinks and it all makes sense. So there's a, there's this big flaw that nothing happens in the very beginning. And the character has those ruminations and only then it kicks into action. And so I don't know how to fix it. Well, it didn't need to be fixed. It's just that the internality of that person, which is very repetitive in some ways, because he's neurodiverse, he's a trauma survivor, he's dealing in mind healing, he's going to, he has no words to describe his internality beyond knowing that he's depressed. So um, yeah, there is no flaw with this. It's just a different way of storytelling. And I think over the years, I think our group of friends, we've, we've really been discussing about 
what does it mean to write a book? So I think I see the outside as a fast-paced book, a book in which a lot of things happen and keep happening, but it still, you know, preserves that internality of, okay, terrible things are happening. I need to think about them. And then a whole second book, then we will be processing what happened in the first. <laughs> and this is a great thing. I mean, I am, I love the fallen and I love that the fallen exists because I need that as a reader. Okay. I need to know that they've not only survived, but they got to process. <laughs> so I don't know if it's newer diverse or if it's queer trans, or if it's all of the above and how to talk about it. But here, those are my thoughts basically at this point. Well, unfortunately, bad things do continue happening in, in the fall. <laughs> <Of course. laughs> and, and will continue to happen in book three. I'm just... yeah, it's, not, it's not all... I'm sorry if I made it sound like it's all, it's all one big happy processing. It's not... <laughs> I think that if you don't know the texts we're talking about, like even Four Profound Weaves, it could be easy to think like, oh, these are like mellow books that don't have a lot of plot. And it's like, no, that's not true. Like, okay, like everything opens with like a huge something and then this amazing thing happens and everybody's going on a journey and fighting, you know, for justice and goodness. And it's, you know, there's so much plot actually in, in, in all three works that we're talking about today. I, I think that, A, listeners, please just, Go read these books. You will you will not regret it. They are all incredible. We will include the names of each in in the show notes. But yeah, I think it's hard sometimes to describe how important interiority is without making it sound like it's all interiority. So I think that yeah, it's a good thing you said that Ada about yeah, lots of things happen in the fallen. Well, yeah, <laughs> and, and betrayal of, and I do think of the outside in particular, like RB said, as a fast paced book. There are, you know, there are spaceships flying around, there are things blowing up, there are people dealing with crises, there are horrible things happening. And I was actually quite surprised when I started, you know, actually showing the book to readers and getting comments from readers like, oh, it drags in places because the protagonist is thinking too much. I'm like, really? And I remember I actually, I mean, you're not supposed to read your, your reviews, but I read a couple and I mentioned it to uh, the person I was in a relationship with at the time. I was like, oh, you know, I didn't realize, but all these people in the reviews are saying that, that my characters are too introspective. And he just looks at me and he says, yeah, have they met you? <laughs> I think it's interesting to consider also what counts as fast-paced and for home point. For me, the outside was definitely fast-paced, but maybe for other people, it might not be. And this, I always find really interesting how people judge those things. Like, what are they basing it on? And I think, yes, there are books that uh, where there's very limited introspection or introspection is considered to be something that gets in the way of action and plot development. And this is not your book, Seda. <laughs> so no matter how many things, terrible things happen and how many terrible things keep exploding, I think the emotional scaffolding is going and the internality is going to be there. And I think that's what's always going to make your books uh, something that I want to read, which of <laughs> course is not going to cover all readers as we all know. You just reminded me of something actually, RB, which is that there are books that feel too slow paced for me. But 
when I think about it, when I think about the books that feel too slow paced to me, it's not that necessarily they have a lot of introspection, like even more introspection than me. Normally, what makes a book feel too slow paced to me is when there are too many like really small inconsequential social interactions. That's what feels too slow paced to me because I guess I'm not, I'm not really wired to, to put the amount of emotional meaning in those interactions that other people are. So maybe, maybe that's just another case of different people with different neurotypes wanting, wanting to see different things in order to move the story along. I don't know. Well, there's, there's something that we're dancing around here. And, and I mean, at least it seems to me. So please tell me where I'm wrong, which is what we're told books and stories are and what they can be. And the people who are often in charge of telling us what books can be, people who are talking about genre and really strict lines of what genre can and can't be, people talking about action versus interiority, those kinds of things are are really conversations about marketing. They're not necessarily conversations about craft and art. And yes, do both those things have to be in consideration? Like, yep, sorry, we live in capitalism. Do I love it? Absolutely not. Would I like something else? Absolutely. But hey, guess what? This is where we are. So I learned to live with it. And I I think there's some, you know, grinding against each other that happens here because sometimes we get given advice, like you were saying, RB, that is, I don't know how to quote, fix your story as you were like, it doesn't need fixing. It's just not the right story for you to publish. But people don't always know that. And and I would say starting out writers really don't know that. So they don't know when to accept the feedback and when to say, no, you just, this piece isn't right for you or for, or for what you're wanting to publish or sell or, or what have you. So it's an interesting conversation because it's about pushing back against a system, but not because you're trying to prove a point, but because you know your stories. And I'm curious how that has shifted since you all were starting out fiction writers. Did you know what your voice was doing and what you were trying to do and why you were interior? Did your art for lack of a better term, get messed up by the feedback process or the rejection process? And then how did you, and, and it seems like community is a piece of this, how did you steal yourself for that process, knowing that not everyone was going to get your story? I have to say that in the beginning, I was very easily discouraged because people, that was a while ago, and I think we've had a really big shift in publishing that um, I I hope uh, both of us have, have had a however smaller role to play in, um, but it, of course, it, it's much bigger than either one of us and any individual person. But I think that we are moving, we have moved away from a paradigm that I've encountered when I was starting out, which was you have to do it a, a very certain way. And at that point, I was just starting writing in English. So I got a lot of feedback about my English, which was not appropriate, but it really hit me. I was told explicitly that queer uh, stories are not going to sell, that I would need to de-queer my stories. The first Birdverse excerpt that I've ever written, and I workshopped it, I was told that I needed to change one of the uh, protagonists to be a different gender to create a heterosexual couple, I guess. Um, And I've received uh, complaints that I'm writing 
women and uh, female assigned people in relationships with each other. Some of them were non-binary. I was told that pronouns uh, were a fad. So I've had, I have a whole collection of those. Okay. Really, really painful rejections. And what actually helped me was editing because as an editor, I was able to tell my poets, you're wonderful. You know, all of that. And I would spend a lot of time telling my poets who were bilingual or multilingual and writing maybe from non-Western, non-Western paradigm. And I would, you know, encourage people who were writing from neuro, neurodiverse perspectives and, and I uh, would encourage LGBTQA perspectives and perspectives of poets of color and voices from non-US uh, poets. And so, in that process, as I was saying those things to other people and I was supporting other people because I felt that what was happening was, was wrong and needed to be changed, I kind of found my courage. So it's really through community that I found the courage to say, you know what, the story might not be right for you, but it's not wrong. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's not wrong. And so... That's kind of was my process. And I think that a lot of us um, have communities of writers who read the work, we read each other's work, we encourage each other. And I think that's a very queer thing, actually. So I think that's that's had a, a good influence on how things have developed. And I definitely think you're right. This is something that has changed a lot in the past decade. We're seeing a lot more acceptance of queer stories and acknowledgement that there is a market for queer stories and that they might look different from straight stories. We're seeing a lot more of that now, I think, than we did 10 years ago. And now it's still not perfect. It's still kind of maybe some queer stories more than others. But I think there is progress that has been made. And I also just, it's really funny to me because for me personally, the protagonist of The Outside and The Fallen is a lesbian. She's an autistic lesbian. And throughout the story, she is in a committed relationship uh, with another female character. And um, I didn't really market it as a queer book at all. I was very focused on like, oh, autism and cosmic horror. Like that was that was what I was talking about. And the protagonist being a lesbian was just, I mean, I'm bisexual myself, but I was just like, well, that she just happens to be that way. You know, it's a, it's an incidental thing. And what I found was that, you know, I was marketing very hard to other autistic people because that was something I'd been building up for a long time. It was, I'd been writing essays and reviews about autism and speculative fiction. It was kind of my little niche that I've carved out. But, you know, just as many people as I was getting from that hard work marketing to autistic people, I was getting just as many readers from just the fact that the protagonist was a lesbian. I got so many people who I'd never seen before and they were coming in from like book talk or from other other places that I'm not really familiar with. And they're going, hey, it's a queer book. There's lesbians in space. Yay. And just all these people. And so for me, I'm like, yeah, there is a huge market for this. And, but but I think some of the some of the publishers, um, and especially the larger publishers who are more conservative and don't want to take as many risks, took a while to clue in that that market was there. Yeah, you know, I don't know if I think RB, you might know this. About Ada, I don't, I don't know if you know, but Sarah and I, um, also with our colleague Monica Estrella Negra, we edit a yearly anthology of science fiction, fantasy, and horror by queer and trans creators in our Decoded Pride anthology. Uh, available in full color PDF now. Go to decodedpride.com, and 
you know, that's part of why we started doing it is we wanted to really create a space where people knew they'd be honored as queer and trans writers. And the truth is, I think as much as it has gotten better, I still get transphobic and homophobic rejections. A bunch of our authors have talked about, and we did some podcast conversations with them about how they still get ableist and and homophobic and transphobic and racist rejections. And so I think even as things change, it's interesting to think about how far does that ripple out and in which cases does that apply? I still think that, as you mentioned, Ada, the the publishing industry is still one of trying to not take a lot of risks, by and large. There are people breaking that model, and hell yeah, we love you for it. And we love the the agents and the editors who are fighting for diverse voices. But it's it's not all better. It's not something that's resolved. I think we're in the middle of making all of that change, hopefully, right? Like we all, it sounds like all four of us really hope we're a piece of fighting for that change. And, you know, the reason I wanted to ask about how you dealt with that discouragement when you were, you know, just breaking in is I think that what we see is so many people said to us like, oh, I stopped making art. And then you sent me your call for submissions. And so I said, well, you know, I'll try. And we're like, oh my God, it's so good. Like, I'm so glad that you submitted to us. Like, I don't want you to stop. And it breaks my heart how many people say that. And, and I think, you know, a lot of those people are, are black and, and black and trans and black and queer. And that is, there's a real challenge to break into an industry. And I think it's, it's something... I can't remember who said this, but it's it's about the way the feedback's given too. Like sometimes people are just so mean and then someone holds on to that thing they didn't even realize was, I don't, I think most people are not cruel on purpose. So maybe they don't even realize how mean it was that they said. And then that person just never makes art again. And, and that just, I sit up at night worrying about that because I know there are so many queer and trans stories and, and particularly those told by black and indigenous and people of color that, that are, are being left behind. So I, I always feel really conflicted when people talk about how we've made so much progress in publishing and we've made progress in speculative fiction because I'm like, yes, and for whom and how do we make sure everybody gets supported and and nurtured because isn't that what we deserve? Like, I don't know why we expect people to be perfect writers out of nowhere. And that's sort of the ethos we have at Decoded Pride is we we look for people who's who are writing stories that have a lot of heart, that make us feel something. And it's like, oh, so you did a little bit too much telling and you need to do a little bit more showing. Like, let us help you figure that out. Like, duh, that's what we're here for. So I don't know. I think to what you said, Arby, about being an editor and that sort of helping you change the way you see other people's, not just writing, but your own writing in comparison with other, not in comparison, but in conversation with other people's. I think Sarah and I and Monica, like all feel that in a big way of like, oh, this is cool. We can be a piece of, of making this work for each other. So I don't know, I guess there's just something there about community that is really important. Thank you for saying that. I think that it's definitely a very good question to consider. And I think both things can be true at the same time. We can make a lot of progress, and I think a lot of progress has been achieved. And we can take a look at the aftermath of the progress and all the people who stopped writing or they slowed down or they're so traumatized that they're trying to deal with their trauma. And even if they continue, they're affected by the meanness and um, 
people who, you know, have said really callous and really often very bigoted things, very racist things, very, very anti-LGBTQA things and Iblis things. And so we need to kind of consider progress not as a net good, but as really a historical process with a lot of fallout, with a lot of victories maybe, but definitely victories, but also a lot of things that we don't notice. I have lately been thinking about the idea of masking as applied to publishing. And I have felt early on when I was just starting out that I was asked to mask my stories and make my stories fit in the world of publishing, which was just kind of similar mechanism to, you know, masking in real life, where you, everything that comes out of your mouth, you need to consider how it's going to be interpreted by neurotypical. So you, you kind of like train yourself in how to move, how to speak, what to say, what not to say, how to read the signs, you know, all of those things that go into the overwhelming feeling that you, you know, you're on, you're, you're working every moment. And uh, many of us cannot do that. Uh, and many of us cannot do that all the time. And many of us who do that um, reach burnout and uh, are burned out. And so when people would come and say different things about my stories, and I saw the same thing, plus, you know, the, the, the overwhelming impact of structural racism and just direct interpersonal racism affecting the writing of my friend Shweta Narayan, who was, um, you know, and remains one of my closest friends. And we've been talking each other to each other uh, very early on about kind of what we're facing and how we're going to, you know, get through this. And I think that um, the need to mask is still there. It's not as intense uh, maybe as it was. But in terms of producing stories that do not follow the Western white storyline structure, you know, we're still facing issues. So, for example, you know, I've been thinking about how um, how I'm interested in stories without the clear three-part structure, you know. And this affects uh, also storytellers who come from non-white, non-Western traditions that they do not come from these structures. I uh, come from, you know, my, my background is Russian. And so Russian novels, even though they are, I guess, a part of Western canon, but they are slower, they are slow to start, you know. And of course, I'm not going to overgeneralize Russian novels, but like the Russian literary novel canon, as a critic whose, whose name I forget, has called the famous 19th century novels of Russian authors, loose baggy monsters, okay? So it's like, there's there's all this extra storytelling that happens in these novels, and I don't see that as extra storytelling. This is what makes reading comforting for me. And then you come to the Western paradigm, and you're, you're, you need to mask, you need to make your stories fit, you need to make your voice fit, and if not, uh, you're going to be told that your stories have a flaw, and no, they don't have a flaw, they're just different. And I don't think we're quite quite there yet in terms of story structure. I think we're getting there in terms of representations. And I think there's more opportunities for people to sit at the big table than ever before in science fiction. And that's a great thing. But it's no, it's nowhere near done. I mean, it's a work in progress and there's a lot of pain that goes into it. Uh, and still a lot of progress to be made. I really love what you said about thinking about it as like a a historical process, right? Like progress is not, I mean, in my opinion, progress is never done because we're changing as, as humans, individually, socially, probably evolutionarily. I need to think about that. I'm not going to put my money on that, but I'm going to, yeah, you know what I am. Uh, and, and I think that then to think of 
Like, of course, this is a moving target, and of course, it can be getting better and also not be better at the same time. I really appreciate that. I think that was really, really beautifully put. Thank you. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Party people, thanks for joining us for another episode of Oh Bitches on Comics, the podcast that keeps coming back from the dead. <laughs> I was just picturing it like coming up as a zombie, like our, our logo, <laughs> like I won't die. Brains! <laughs> brains! We eat you brains. <laughs> we always love to have you here with us. We obviously like to have a good time. Maybe you've heard about another project of ours that is also a good time. Decoded. 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 Pride. Decoded. Pride. Decoded. We didn't even rehearse that. We were so on. Oh, my God. This is the kind of synergy that you cannot buy. Like, you just have to experience it in real time. And that's kind of what... Decoded Pride is Sarah, <laughs> myself, and Monica Estrella Negra. We are the editors of Decoded Pride. We love it. It is such an honor to get to read so many beautiful stories by queer and trans creators and to put together an anthology that has a story a day for Pride Month. What's even cooler about our project is, oh, what month is it right now? I don't know because we recorded this in advance. But guess what? You can still get a full-color PDF today. These PDFs... I mean, A, they're a lot of work, but B, <laughs> they are stunning. I can't believe how good it looks. We have got a professionally designed layout that is sharp, beautiful. You see our comics just pop up off the page. Sarah's incredible illustrations for each story are just like, what? So don't miss out. Go join us. Support independent queer and trans creators. And while you're picking up issue two, you can also grab issue one. They're $14.99 a piece, and you can find them at decodedpride.com. Brains! Decoded Pride Brains! I was thinking.
thinking about how earlier we were talking about people having to process and doing that in fiction and how that's a positive, which I definitely agree with. But I also was thinking a little bit more on it in that, yeah, even even books and stories that I feel like are intrinsically anti-war will often not really show you the fallout of it or like the fallout of violence or the long-term effects. And if they do, it'll be in this moment where they just like break down which like is part of it, but I think that maybe the biggest part of trying to recover from trauma is all of those like quiet days, you know, that never seem to end and you're just like laying in bed and don't have any energy and like all of the different ways that people respond. And I just don't think that there has, I mean, there to some extent there has been, but there just isn't really a big exploration of that in fiction. And so I'm excited to see more of it, but I was just curious if you had any thoughts on that. So I like to write about trauma. I It's a topic that interests me. I also think that trauma is an incredibly difficult topic to talk about. And it's partly because, like you said, it produces these reactions that are not in keeping with, you know, the modern Western idea of, oh, things got to keep happening. You got to keep being active and doing this and that. Trauma doesn't always allow you to do that. But I think there are other reasons why trauma is very difficult to write about. And one of the reasons is that, I mean, trauma is inherently an upsetting thing. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it sounds, it sounds like I'm trivializing it when I say that. But what I mean is people are going to be triggered by discussing trauma. People, writers are going to have to go to uncomfortable places in their own minds to discuss trauma. Readers are going to have to go to uncomfortable places in their own minds in order to to, to take in a story about trauma and, and, and really respond emotionally to what's going on. It takes courage on the part of both the writer and the reader in a way that many other topics do not. And the only people for whom it doesn't require that kind of courage are people who have no trauma and are not going to emotionally resonate with the story in the first place. So it's like, where do you even find your audience for a story about trauma? Where do you find readers who are not going to be just freaked out by what you're doing? And I find when I write about trauma, if I'm not careful, I can get paralyzed by that sense of, you know, I'm writing something too upsetting and I, and I, and I shouldn't, you know, but actually I should. A lot of what you said resonates with me. And I think there are different components that I want to, to comment on. The first is who gets to be a protagonist. And I think that's, that's such a big question. And often, again, from, from some rejections that I received and, and saw other people receive, there's been this kind of like bias towards an active protagonist that has affected authors who are not writing from the white Western able-bodied paradigm and who want to showcase characters who are maybe going to receive feedback that they're too passive. Maybe they're going to receive feedback that these characters are too detached. Maybe they're going to receive feedback that the characters are too self-pitying. And no, they're, they're not passive. They're just coming from a culture where this is the way to behave according to who they are in the world and how maybe their gender assignment, maybe their, you know, family structure. They are not passive, but they're, they're operating within a different worldview and these decisions make space, make sense within the worldview and the cultures that they're coming from, but they're not going to be read this way by Western, Western editors or Western eyes. 
So that's editorial, you know, racist bias that comes into play. And then when we're thinking, oh, we receive feedback, oh, this character is too detached, you know, maybe no, maybe the character is not too detached. Maybe the character has is a trauma survivor and they're having a trauma reaction and they've stopped uh, stopped having emotional processing and they're just trying to survive and they have a detached internality. Maybe they're neurodiverse as well and they're, you know, they're having this detached internality because the world is not safe and they're trying to make through. But the neurotypical editorial or even neurotypical readers want to receive hand-holding on how this works. Or, you know, again, the characters do self-pitying, which is a, a feedback I've gotten in an unpublished novel where I have have an autistic depressed protagonist who is paralyzed and has autistic catatonia, uh, which is something I know very, very well because I get it sometimes as well. And so the character gets paralyzed and is, doesn't know what to do and and uh, is quite self-pitying at times. And um, basically the feedback I received uh, is that it's too much. And so I didn't maybe do enough hand-holding for the readers to convince them or for the editorial, really, the readers are fine, for the editorial to convince them that this is marketable. So when we go back to who gets to be a protagonist, I think there's this prototypical protagonist idea that we we have been pushing against. And again, this is the work of many, many people. What does the protagonist look like? What does the protagonist feel like and get to be? Do they get to be non-Western? Do they get to be a person of color? Do they get to be disabled? And, and if so, how? Do they get to be have ADHD and have symptoms of ADHD as they're narrating and their internality is going to be an internality of having ADHD and not, you know, or are they going to have depression and then they're going to have catatonia and they will need to ruminate on things maybe sometimes. And I am still really looking forward to the full spectrum of humanity being included in the idea of a protagonist. Because if we're not doing that, we're erasing a lot of people from being characters of books and being protagonists of books. Because I think the only active go-getter, you know, there's, there's too much overlap with colonialist ideas for me to be really happy about this situation where only one type of person will be prioritized for being a protagonist. And then in terms of trauma and in terms of portraying trauma, been thinking about the outside uh, as a book in which Isira is is very lonely. I mean, it's not it's not that she's lonely per se, but she's she's on her own, even as she's without other people. But she's detached from her uh, girlfriend, fiance, <laughs> and um, the fallen shows us a, a group. <laughs> and so uh, I was thinking about kind of the relationships of care and communities of care that we seem to to want and need maybe, and uh, which we really, or at least I really want to see in literature. And I've been thinking about it as something that is uh, quintessentially queer, uh, queer and trans-centric, and also maybe neurodiverse, where we put the emphasis not on the lone hero, but on the community. And maybe within that, trauma processing becomes safer, I don't know what you think about that, or at least possible, if not safer. 
So I think you are absolutely right about active protagonists. And I'm glad you said that. And I want to talk a little bit about kind of kind of my process writing Yasira. Um, because for a long time when I was working on the draft of The Outside and I was going through many revisions and one of the things I was really having trouble getting right was Yasira's character because no matter what I did and no matter how I tried to give her, you know, her own character traits and everything and feelings about things, I was getting people saying, oh, she feels like a, she feels really flat. She feels like a flat character. And I was like, I don't know what's wrong. And the only reason that I figured that out is because I had one really, really insightful uh, beta reader who was also autistic, who took a look at the book and who said, all right, I see why Yasira feels like a flat character. It's because she's depressed. And I was like, oh, and no, it's, it's absolutely she's depressed and she's not aware that she's depressed and she's just kind of going through the motions of her life. And that's what's going on with her. And that's why she is not experiencing kind of the emotional range that you would expect from a neurotypical active protagonist. And so I really, I sat down and thought about what I wanted to do about that. And my beta reader, you know, was helping me talk through a few options. And I realized I did not want to make her not be depressed, but I wanted to be a little bit smarter about how I portrayed that. I wanted to process it a bit more. I wanted to make it a little clearer on the page to readers who were not, this is one especially intelligent beta reader. I wanted to make it a little clearer on the page what was happening. And so I went through and I did a revision just focused on Yasira and focused on that and focused on showing a little bit more clearly what was going on with her and why her mind was a little bit weird the way it was, you know, not just autism, but uh, this other state of being as well. And uh, that seemed to do it. Once I did that revision, people liked Yasira a lot more. I got a lot fewer of those flat character reactions. So thank goodness for very intelligent beta readers who can, who can help me figure that out. And I have to say that was a revision that took a lot of courage on my part. It was something I had to really dig in to some unpleasant emotions of my own in order to figure out what was going on there and how to make it clear. But in the following, I had a bit of a different problem with Yasira because Yasira, of course, she starts out depressed at the beginning of the outside and then she goes through all this other shit all this other trauma. And at the beginning of The Fallen, she is not doing well. She is quite ill. And she is not really getting out of her room most days um, because that is what happens sometimes when people are quite traumatized and quite ill. And what I realized very early on with The Fallen was I was not, Yusira was not in a state where she could sustain the novel in the traditional mold of a single active protagonist. And the way I dealt with that was not by changing Yasira and not by completely putting Yasira out of the story, but by making it more of a group story and more of a community story and balancing it between more different points of view. And um, so it's much more, it is Yasira's story still in the fallen, but it's also Tiff's story. And it's also several other stories that are all winding together and supporting each other. And within that structure, I feel like there was more room to let Yasira be as ill as she needed to be and to let her struggle as much as she needed to and still find what she needed to find uh, by the end of the story. And I want to say also that this whole conversation is reminding me of an essay that I really like, which is called 25 Essential Notes on Craft uh, by Matthew Celeses. And I can, I can send you a link to it 
So you can show it to readers at the end of the podcast if you would like. But it's just this wonderful essay talking about how craft is a set of expectations that come from somewhere culturally. And they come from kind of a power structure culturally that's being enforced. And it doesn't actually, the way we typically think about craft doesn't actually account for everyone. And especially not for people of color or people who come from non-Western cultures. It doesn't account for that at all. And we need to maybe revise our idea of craft uh, to account for that. This is really great. I'm looking forward to reading this essay. I haven't read it, but I'm looking forward to reading it. And I think I want to go back to you talking about the Fallen as a group effort. And I have to say that um, I love that about the Fallen. I really appreciate that you had that. And I really appreciate that we got many um, you know, people who are on the page, they're struggling with mental health and they're, you know, there's a range of things that they're struggling with and they can offer support as they're able. And I found that, I found that very lifelike and <laughs> from my own family, from my own friend circle, just from life. And I feel that is not something that I see in the many narratives which are not focused on queer, trans, and neurodiverse communities and or disabled, you know, disabled communities, because this idea of a community of care where people understand that not everybody is going to be a protagonist, right? Not everybody's, everybody can be a protagonist, but not everybody can be a canonical protagonist and it's just going to power through it. You know, you, you have uh, just lived through the worst trauma in your life and you are like mobilizing and you're going to slay a monster and you're going to just, you know, everything is going to just continue as if nothing happens and you're not going to pay any price. You're just going to power through heroically. And that's not how we, you know, we, we live. And, um, I really love Loved having that community portrayal uh, in the Fallen, and it reminds me of the book that I've written, uh, which is coming out next year, which is called The Unbalancing, and it's another birdverse book. And uh, I mean, it's not out yet, so I'm not going to spoiler it for you, and it's not going to be out for a while yet. But one of the protagonists is autistic and is struggling with being told to take on responsibilities that they are just not able. They're, they're not able. And they just say, I, I cannot do this. And, uh, they are part of a very supportive community. And so there's, there's an understanding that they need to consent to doing the things that they, they cannot do them. And, um, at one point, two protagonists, one of them is, is, more or less neurotypical, so not maybe not perfectly neurotypical at that, but the character who is a go-getter run-around character is running around and trying to deal with an aftermath of an earthquake, and uh, the, the other character just says, I need to sit, and they sit down, because they're overwhelmed. And um, the character who runs around immediately stops and tries to figure out what they need, and is frustrated, because she wants to go on. But I'm thinking about it because I'm thinking, but still that character, even though she's frustrated, she's going to stop and attend and try to figure out how she can help. Uh, but that moment when this character sits down, I remember writing it and I remember thinking, oh, why am I writing this? They, they need to keep moving. They're doing things. They need to keep moving. Things are happening. And it was really liberating for me as an author to say, no, they're, they're going to sit down. They're going to look at a pebble. That's what's going to happen because they simply cannot continue. And I think that's a moment that for me as an author was maybe the equivalent of, you know, Yasira spending a lot of time 
in a room uh, in the beginning of, of The Fallen, you know, where, no, you're not going to force your character to get up and run just because this is what's expected by the typical narrative. But that character gets to lie down or that character gets to sit. And I think that is, in a small way perhaps, but that is is, is radical. Um so yeah, thank you for writing The Fallen. Oh, well, you're welcome. And I'm really looking forward to reading The Unbalancing because that moment sounds very cool. Thank you. So Arby, I think we might have talked about this last time you were on a little bit, but I was kind of wondering overall, how does the environment that you're in, because I consider both of these well, all of these books to be kind of interesting and like lush environments in a way. And I love how like the world building comes up and everything. So I'm kind of curious, how does the environment that you are in inform the way that you do world building? So by environment that we are in, do you mean like physical built environment or yeah like your physical space we were talking before the call about you know the expansive space of a lot of Kansas which is like a a little bit different than where you're at but then how there's there's a lot to build on it feels like you know whatever you look around and so yeah I was just curious if that's something that really goes into how you view your work so this is a great question. So uh, I'm going to start by saying that I'm in Kansas kind of by accident and I've lived here for a long time, but this is where my job is. But I'm not from Kansas. I'm not from the United States. And I've I've moved incessantly ever since I was very little. And I've kind of lived in too many places for kind of with lots and lots of relocations. And so definitely living in a lot of different places and, and experiences of repeated migration all color, you know, all affect how I write and what I write. But I think that it's actually deeper than that. I have a lot of interest in detail. I feel that my gaze is very detailed in that when I look at things, I notice details. And it's almost like stimming for me where I have my small collection of textiles that I've collected and I I love to stare at them and they're wonderful and they have all kinds of details and so the same thing I like things that are embroidered I like things that are carved and I love things that have a lot of detail and so wherever I go wherever I find myself I will notice a lot of detail and so I think that bird verse readers know that there's a lot of detail and it's not just because of my environment it's because of how I view things and then because I have been very very poor and migrant throughout much of my earlier life I feel that I've lived in all kinds of environments which have not been lush, have not been detailed, and I'm not struggling with that level of uh, okay, you must you must be able to move at a very short notice, and you can't have a lot of things, and you you don't have a lot of things. So I'm no longer struggling with that. So I've uh, been lucky to collect a lot of vintage small stuff that I stare at in my office. And uh, this house that I now live in is the first time I had a room of my own in my life. So it's my office. It's where I do most of my writing. And so I have my textiles and my book uh, arts and uh, my fountain pen stuff. I love fountain pens. And so it's not as much affecting my writing as it's affirming my need for sensory input, which is of very specific kind. And it's it's comforting. So I have it. Sometimes it feels very cluttered and I begin to 
minimize and, <laughs> and you know try to figure out whether I've 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 overdone it with a with the amount of small intricate things that I I have on my surface at any given moment. But does that help? <laughs> does that does that address it? And then uh, in terms of Kansas, Kansas is people have so many notions about Kansas that are kind of strange. But I love living here because. There's this feeling of the vastness of the sky, the very crisp, clear night sky with lots and lots of stars. And I feel that it's a place where it can get really quiet. And I very much appreciate that as a person who've lived in so many other places, just to see this, you know, vast expanse of sky is, is a big deal for me. And what about you, Ada? Does environment as you experience, does that influence how you come up with everything that's going on? Well, it's interesting because my, my, my life experience here is, is very different from Arby's because I'm someone who has really stayed pretty close to the same place for almost all of my life. I'm currently living and having my day job in the same city uh, where I grew up. And for me, Well, there's two things that come to mind when you ask how my environment influences my writing. And one of them is that, especially for the time when I was writing uh, The Fallen, but really also The Outside, um, really in two different ways, kind of. But I was uh, in a position where I was very physically and socially isolated. Uh, That's something that's been the case for me even before the pandemic, but now we're all feeling it because of the pandemic. And I think in The Fallen in particular, that's something that comes across that even in, even though it's a book about community, it's also a book where a lot of people are dealing with being very isolated. There's characters who are kind of on the run and stuck in a spaceship together and can't really get out of it or, or talk to anyone outside the spaceship. There is Yasira struggling with the fact that she's having so much mental health difficulty that she's not really getting out of her room and engaging with the people around her, even though they are supportive people, there's something there that's not connecting. And there are parts of what's going on that she's not being told about because she's isolating herself to such a degree. And I think there are a couple other things in there that relate to the theme of isolation, but they're escaping me at the moment because that's something I was feeling very deeply at the time that I wrote it. The other thing is that and and I, I notice this tendency in myself a lot when I'm writing cosmic horror imagery in particular. So when I'm writing about, you know, not to give spoilers, but certain places or areas in the setting of the outside where everything is kind of turned upside down and become very cosmic horror-y. And I think what I'm doing when I write settings like that is I'm trying to convey something about my everyday experience because... I am someone who experiences sensory overload very easily. And there are, there are things I enjoy that involve going out of the house. I'm on, and, but the experience of going out of my house and dealing with things that are completely normal and everyday to other people, like, like going to the store or whatever are actually very intense and very difficult for me in certain ways. And that's not something that it's easy for a neurotypical reader to grasp. And I almost feel like instead of writing a long description about why the store is overwhelming, like that's, that's boring. I don't really want to do that. It's boring and humiliating, but 
Instead, what I find myself doing is writing these scenes where, you know, the room around you has come alive in this unsettling way, you know, or the, the grass and trees around you are doing something weird and, and, and unsettling and not entirely controllable. And I think what I'm trying to do when I write like that is to convey the experience of sensory overload in a way that people who are not me will understand. <laughs> so it's like almost a self-autistic message. Well, and it, it it can also be read as so about so many other things too, right? Like there's there's something about the way that the outside is is so I guess indifferent towards <laughs> humans and like everything else that it, it also to me sometimes feels like the and maybe this is a different way of describing a similar thing, but it feels like the unruly nature of being alive. Right? Like, we all pretend we're in control of, like, this. And I'm, like, gesturing at my whole body. Like, as if, like, I think everything and then do it. Like, oh, I'm so well-behaved. Like, I make so much sense in the world. But really, like, I don't know what the fuck is going on with me most of the time. I'm just like, okay, that was a decision I made in public. Would I do it differently in the future? We'll find out. So I think there's something about the way that the outside breaks through that it feels like it's about how life is not really what we all kind of pretend it is that existence isn't so clean and tidy and that the the boundaries we create feel kind of fungible and to me there feels like something non-binary about it but not even necessarily saying non-binary as in gender but as in like there is no binary here you know the outside is like an all-encompassing something and it makes me think with a different part of my brain when I read about the outside. And that to me is such a fruitful place to come from as a, a creative, as a reader, as a writer, as a queer person, as a trans person. This, this idea that there are other forms of being or knowledge that, that don't play by our rules. I think that is actually a great point. And I love the way you said say that. And I think that in particular, this is something that comes out in the contrast between the outside and the AI gods that, that supposedly rule um, the galaxy in this setting, because the AI gods, they're very much focused on rules and categories and how things are supposed to be. And they will very viciously enforce their idea of how things are supposed to be. And meanwhile, you have the outside, which is just completely mystical and not fully knowable and not controllable. And Ysira's task in the book is almost to reconcile those two aspects of existence. Um, yeah, I have uh, I have some questions or thoughts about about this. I uh, uh, when I was reading the outside and the fall, and I kept thinking about the scope of noticing, and that goes back to what Se said that you know life is ultimately unknowable and much larger than than any person can encompass it. But I think that. What I I experience and I think is is not uncommon to other neurodiverse and especially autistic people is that the scope of noticing is what's overwhelming. So you kind of begin noticing all those connections and all those implications and all those things going on. And it kind of expands for me, almost indefinitely expands. And then at a certain point, it becomes overwhelming. It's too much. And I've noticed that uh, people who are maybe uh, neurotypical, the scope of noticing is narrower, so it's just like not as overwhelming. So, or, or maybe they can narrow the focus much more easily than I can. And in uh, The Outside and the Fallen, there are different levels of what 
people are aware of and the scope of their awareness vis-a-vis the outside and the abilities of the outside and what the outside means. And so with Yasira, I think it's, it's, it's a bit of a struggle for her to kind of embrace that, um, understanding or ex- extending the scope of understanding what the outside is and, and how she kind of comes at it. I don't know if I'm expressing it correctly or no. But then we see all kinds of characters who have a relationship with an outside that maybe is dependent on how much of it they can notice and be aware of. And then what does it do for them? Does it overwhelm them? Does it make them become, you know, mentally ill for whatever value of, of that expression even can have in such a context? Does it make them narrowly focus on their survival and nothing beyond their survival? And so I'm very interested in that context. Coming back to Dr. Taylor's um, insistence that many things are a lie. You know, because she she keeps sing, saying, and then Yasira also, you know, figures out that yes, many things are a lie. So, what is the truth? If so many things are basically an illusion, is there even such a thing as truth uh, when we're dealing with something that's so chaotic and so you know so shifting as the outside? Like, what what are we actually getting at? Is there a core? Is it just going to? continue shifting. And if things continue shifting and the scope of awareness is so wide, uh, it's no no wonder that it's going to become overwhelming. You know, it's going to become overwhelming really fast. And in that in that context, I was thinking about the AI gods' uh, insistence on, on rules. And I was wondering if you viewed the AI gods themselves maybe as as neurodiverse. <laughs> of course, the AI gods are not, are not people. And so they don't necessarily get to have a neurotype. But I think that rules can be very comforting in the universe where the outside also exists. So I wanted to hear what you thought about those things. That is some really interesting points. And I don't know what I think of them, but I'm glad, I'm glad I, I'm glad you said that about the scope of noticing because that's not something I had been thinking about consciously, but I can see, I can, I can see what you're getting at and how I'm remembering the detail of how some of the angels have programming built in that makes them deliberately not able to notice the outside yeah. so that they can keep functioning. <laughs> I never thought of the AI gods as really I guess I never really thought of them as neurotypical and I never really thought of them as non-neurotypical because that just didn't occur to me. But that's that's really interesting food for thought. And I think the attraction of rules and systems and certainty is a big part of what attracts people to wanting to follow the gods in the first place. In your book and IRL, am I right? Yeah, I think that's like, it's so relatable, right? The world is so chaotic. Ours and the world's, actually in both of your books, right? That existence is so chaotic. It makes sense that people grasp towards things that give structure to that. And that's what I, you know, I thought was so cool about Yasira's arc in The Fallen is the way that she both leans into with her plurality, the the sort of structure of the strike force, you know, her personalities that come together to help her implement her grand plan. But then the way where she also learns to see the value in the parts of her that wish they could just die because maybe they could sustain, oh, I got chills, I'm going to cry. So maybe they could sustain some of that pain that is a necessary part of of this process. 
So I I just think it's really cool the way that your books are asking questions about like, what does it mean to have structure? What does it mean if that structure is created as like the seven do out of love and connection? And okay, we need someone who's going to smack the gavel, you know, like we just, we need someone to smack the gavel. Okay. So you'll be the leader who smacks the gavel. And then their need to then also say like, oh, there, there is a lot of chaos here and Oh God, now I want to talk about the ending, which I know I'm not going to do on the record, but I might I might make you stay for like two seconds after we record just so I can freak out. I would be happy to talk to you about the ending after the podcast. Okay, great, because I really want to. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I just think there's so much here about like control and systems and community and when does structure help us? When does structure hurt us? Is it a matter of how much structure? And I love that it's just a lot of meaty questions left to the reader to deal with because these are not, these are not solely philosophical treatises. These are, these are meant to be like stories. And so I I just, I don't know. You got me very excited when you said that, I guess. So I had to ramble a little bit about how much I, I, I really appreciate that. Well, as usual, I would like to know what you all have coming up because there's been some mention of future books and I'd just love to hear all about it. So for me, uh, The Fallen just came out in July, so not that long ago. And currently I am working on book three because this is going to be a trilogy and I'm still writing it. I'm still working on the draft and that's going very slowly and um, unfortunately, we're in a pandemic and it's making a lot of people slow. And so we're hoping that book three will be out by the end of 2022. I'm hoping that I can make it for that schedule. I'm not sure if I will be able to. But eventually, that is what's coming up with me is we're going to finish the trilogy with hopefully some very epic things happening. I'm so looking forward. I hope it comes out in 2022. (laughs) But of course, please go at your own pace. If all goes well, I'll have two books in 2022. One of them is a poetry memoir that I wrote uh, over a while about... uh, It's my first non-speculative book, although it does include an ice dragon. So, um, But the dragon was real. And it's a book about climate change and Soviet Jews and my family and uh, Varkuta Gulag, uh, which is uh, Varkuta uh, is, is a circumpolar town where I lived um, as a child for years with my parents and has have had all kinds of experiences. And so now this is the most rapidly declining town in Europe. Uh, people are trying to leave because of different reasons, but big one is climate change. Uh, but not the only one. So this book is called Everything Thaws and it's going to come out, out in June 2022 from Ben Yehuda Press, uh, which is a Jewish press which publishes all kinds of interesting titles. And then in October 2022, The Unbalancing is going to come out from Tachyon. And this is a novel which has um, started its life as a novella, but expanded into a novel. It happens about 2,000 years before the events of The Four Profound Weaves. And it's about a bunch of mostly non-binary, queer, magic keepers on an archipelago that are trying to prevent uh, an environmental magical catastrophe 
from happening and oh they yeah they fall in love and save the cat so it's a book that i'm hoping people would enjoy um i have a lot of feelings about you know this book being in the world so i hope it will find its readers and i hope it's gonna be um it's gonna be a book um that people will want to discuss it's a beginning of many stories it's not the end of the line but the beginning of the line and so a lot of issues will be raised in that book which are not answered in the book but are going to be answered over other birdverse books so i'm i'm really looking forward to seeing what people will think about it and then I'm working on a Big Bird verse novel that I hope to finish uh, and take on submission as soon as I can. And that novel is about evolution and linguistics. And it's about a linguist who travels and hopes to, to give a lecture and do some field work. And by the time she arrives, she discovers that she's been on the road for three months. And then she discovers that the government has changed. Laws have changed. There is civil unrest going on. The government might change again. It's not really open to people coming from outside. So she is taken to a jail and it kind of spools out from there. And, uh, uh, I'm really invested in this novel. It has a lot about language and a lot about queerness and a lot about uh, being non-binary in a culture that does not actually have words and language for non-binary people. And then acquiring that language. So a lot of the issues that I've been dealing with in other books is going to come through in this one. It's called Bridgers, but it maybe will be called something else. But for now, it's called Bridgers. So that's what I have in the docket. I'm really excited about all of those. <laughs> I, I was doing my maniacal laugh. I'm like, oh, I've got my reading lists before me. I cannot wait. Um, again, as RB said, take your time. Take the time it takes for your art. I actually will be much more patient than I pretend, but I'm really excited to to see where these these uh, stories and this universe, this multiverse, uh, where where things go from here. So, if people want to find you on social media, where can they do that? And what are your handles? And then, where would you like people to find you online? Let's start with RB. I am found on Twitter. I've taken a bunch of hiatuses from Twitter, but I'm still mostly found on Twitter. I can't leave. Uh, and my handle on Twitter, Twitter is rb underscore Lemberg. I'm also on Instagram, uh, as rb Lemberg without the underscore. And I have a Patreon, which is patreon.com slash rb Lemberg. Uh, and my website is surprising nobody rblumberg.net um so i hope that folks who want to find out more about my work are going to visit some of those places uh, on my patreon i put things that are not available elsewhere uh which have to do with birdverse mythology stories poems and things like this so that's it so i am on twitter my twitter handle is xasymptote i'll email you how to spell that and <laughs> you can put it in the show notes um not not the most brightest idea of a Twitter handle ever, but that's my Twitter handle. Um, my website is adahoffman.com, uh, unsurprisingly. And I also have a Substack newsletter, which is adahoffman.substack.com, where you can keep up with me and hear me uh, write little articles about different things. Or if you pay me $5, you can have even more of them, but you can also follow for free and keep up with the news that way. Fantastic. We'll make sure to note all of that in the show notes, just in case you didn't have a pen handy and you can go click and please go buy these books. Go buy The Outside. Go buy The Fallen. Go buy The Four Profound Weaves. Not only is it 
awesome. They're all amazing books. And hey, if you can't afford them, check them out from your library. Check them out again from your library. Read them. Read them again. Read them 18 times. This is super important. We got to support the authors who are doing the work that we need. We need our trans and queer authors out there making the world a better place. So RB, Ada, holy cow, what a gift to get to talk to you. I love your work. Sarah loves your work. And we're just so delighted that you decided to come to us today to have this awesome conversation. I have so much to think about, like, as a person, but also as a creative. I'm like, wow. You gave me chills, RB, when you were like, who gets to be a protagonist? I was like, ooh, ooh, chills, chills. So I got a lot to process later after I get off this call and perhaps, you know, cry my eyes out. We'll see. Thank you so much for having us. It's been great. Yeah, thank you very much, because this was a really cool, deep conversation. I really enjoyed it. Oh, my heart is so happy. Thank you both again so, so much. Sarah, thank you for, as always, being a damn ray of sunshine. Kate, we love you. Listeners, as always, we're your bitches, and we love you. a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So (laughs) we can't have it spelled out. It is B dot T-C-H-E-S-O-N-C-O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com. And yeah, remember, there's no I'm bitch. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Music provided by Earth Control Pill, which you can find at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand-friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.